The following is a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management. Broadcasting live from the Santa Lucia Highlands through the heart of the Casterville Artichoke Fields, westward to the Elkhorn Slough, and south to the rugged Big Sur coastline, you're listening to What's the Plan? A weekly discussion with local thought leaders about the future of Monterey County. And now, here's your host, Mr. Paul Wyant. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting program. Uh, We have the distinguished opportunity to interview Mr. David R. Henderson, uh, local... uh, he, was, he worked at the uh, MPS at the Navy School until uh, just recently, and he was also an economic advisor to Ronald Reagan and a uh, famed graduate of the UCLA School of Economics. And he's written a book called The Essential UCLA of Economics, uh, scholars about some of the professors that taught there during the 70s and 80s and how influential they were uh, in their teachings. But before we begin, let me remind you that this program is sponsored by Express Employment Professionals of Monterey County. If you need great staff for your business, please give us a call, 831-920-1857. And if you want to listen to this program again or any of our past episodes, go to whatstheplanmonterey.com. And you can download the episodes there. Of course, iTunes and Spotify are available as well. Uh, Mr. Henderson, Dr. Henderson, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks, Paul. Uh, Yeah, I'm really uh, looking forward to this. Uh, He's also, Mr. Henderson or Dr. Henderson has also been a guest on Econ Talk. And so if you really like economics, uh, I think uh, Russ Roberts, who recently moved to Israel, uh, is the host of that. I think it was about a month or two ago. And uh, this great program as well. So uh, what can you tell us what uh, what brought you to write write this book? Um, Yeah, obviously, you were taught by some of these professors. But uh, can you talk a little bit about why you wrote the book? Yeah, sure. And by the way, I want to give credit. It's co-authored. So Steve (laughs) Gloverman is the other author. And he's key in this because it was a really nice division of labor. He got his master's at UCLA, and then because of some sickness in the family, had to move to NYU, but still kept in trust with UCLA. I got my PhD at UCLA. In fact, it's what brought me down from Canada eh, to, uh, to get that degree. And we realized, both of us, that we were getting something very special. It was a major program. Graduates of of my era, the 70s mainly, early 80s, were getting offers at very good schools and getting interviews at very good schools, even if they didn't lead to uh, offers. It was very unusual in a few senses. One is it was relatively unmathematical. And I was a math major who'd done very well. So math didn't scare me, but I'd already seen, even at age 21, how little mileage people got out of it. And they were sacrificing the economics to the math. And so that was neat. But the other thing was, and so there were two major, there are a number of major players, but the two biggest ones were Armin Elchin and Harold Demsetz. And both of them wrote in the area of property rights. And they used, and so the way I summarized once Armin Elchin's views is show me the rules show me the rights and I'll predict behavior. And I remember my, so, so I don't know if, I don't want to monologue too much, but can I just tell a story from the first day? My first day in his class at UCLA, September, 1972, he tells us that we will start noticing things around us 
that we won't understand unless we start thinking in terms of property rights. And then we'll understand them and we'll feel great about them. (laughs) And so one of his examples was, you know what? I'm getting this noise from something. Probably I left Facebook open or something. Should I get rid of that? Sure. Um, Shoot. I don't even know where it is. We'll leave it in. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Um, So anyway, um, he... He said, okay, you're going to go over and get the textbooks at the bookstore on campus. You're going to line up for a long time. You'll be upset about that. You should be happy about that. Why should you be happy? Because it illustrates what happens when they're not property rights. The students at the bookstore don't care. They're getting the same wage no matter what. There's no owner It's not like there's a private owner who's profit maximizing and trying to make sure there's efficient service. And so notice you're you're already going to learn the importance of property rights or the absence of property rights. And as I said in another book I wrote, when I heard that, the first thing I did felt was not happiness. (laughs) (laughs) But nevertheless, it was like, oh my God, he's right. And so you start looking around, you start seeing all these things around you and understanding. And that's one of the things that led to the understanding for which I already had a gut feel about why for-profit firms work generally better than nonprofit firms and way better than government agencies. Yeah, that's it's and and the, so we we should dive into some of the criticisms of that but before you have a great quote uh about about property rights because you you basically say that it it seems they seem a little pernicious. I'm actually uh paraphrasing. I should probably just read it, but uh it says one would uh say once one understands certain aspects of competitive markets, one would view many institutions that people to object to in a more sympathetic light. And I think part of what you're talking about is like property rights seem evil at first because you think about polluted rivers or blocking my view or, you know, working against the common good. But a lot of times when you when you take it to its natural assumption or natural end, it seems to like things just work out. It's more like, um, what, what do you economists call it? All of a sudden, uh, emergent order or something like that. Yeah, yeah, spontaneous order to use Friedrich Hayek's term. Uh, and also they do use the term emergent order. Very good. And by the way, I read Hayek's thing about spontaneous order when I was 18. Mm-hmm. It probably wasn't until I was well along in graduate school where I understood that spontaneous doesn't mean quick. <laughs> it means it just comes about. It can take a while. Well, I often argue that is because like people are all getting, well, I want to talk about the American Tim Cannery and talk about some of the broader aspects of your book and some property rights. And then we can talk specifically about the Tim Cannery because I think that's a fascinating, Yeah, uh, what's going on with that legally is fascinating. But um, yeah, it's, it, I, I, Actually, let's just shift there because um, I, I do think that that who has the right. So why is it bad that so right now a, a retired Superior Court judge of California is suing using Coastal Commission rules to prevent that the owners of that building from turning it into a hotel. And a lot of what they're talking about is they're talking about harbor seals. They're talking about view sheds, you know, like being able to see about uh, rooms that that poor people can afford and things like that. So why? Like to take us through like, you know, the book and the philosophies in the book and what, how it could be applied to the American tin cannery. Okay. Can I, well, can I tell you a seal story to start with that doesn't relate oh, yeah. to those harbor seals? Yeah. So I grew up in Canada. There was a show Sunday night on TV called This Hour Has Seven Days. And it was like 60 minutes, although a little more emotive. <laughs> 
it was anyway. Um, so there was this one episode about all these baby seals getting clubbed to death. It was just horrible. And 50,000 baby seals. And our family sat around. I was like 13 or 14. I was the youngest of three. But all of us, our parents and my two siblings, we just thought this was horrible. End of story just goes on. We never think much about it again. It wasn't until I was researching this book that I found out that Elchin and Demsetz had written about it and pointed out that this was due to the absence of property rights. There was a 50,000 quota. Well, if there's a 50,000 quota and what you don't get, someone else gets, you're just going to club away and do it really quickly versus say, assigning a quota to each person or whatever, selling rights or all kinds of ways to do it where you get more humane treatment and you don't go after the babies you go after the adults because you want the babies to grow related to fishing industry in monterey is also they've gone through that in alaska as well where they would over like they would you know that was the deadliest catch i guess it's not so deadly anymore because they've revised a lot of those rules those fish windows and things so similar situations yeah and i remember and i when i taught something similar in my class i could never find this reference but i remember reading it was that in alaska i've forgotten whether it was the uh, salmon i no anyway it was some kind of fish where the government had set a time limit because people would fish so quickly and within that time is the only time you could do it. And they had to keep reducing the time because the fishermen got more and more technological so they could do more in a certain amount of time. And the question I asked my students is, what was the time allowed for fishing um, for this particular fish? And, and it just ratcheted down. And so they'd guess a week, no, a day, no. And it was like an hour or something, like <laughs> because it was that quick. Um, I think they auction off like pounds of fish now. I think they do something like that. They say, oh, this many pounds of fish. So they auction it off and you have months to do it. Which yeah. makes a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah. And so um, and there was one other thing I was going to say about fish oh the seals and i've lost it i've lost it so anyway that's the seal story oh, oh i know what i was gonna say so Demsetz wrote this famous article called toward a theory of property rights it was published in the most prestigious economics journal at the time american economic review and in it he laid out the this kind of problem where you don't have property rights so people overexploit it and one of the things that my co-author and i pointed out in the book there's this famous article written by a guy named Garrett Hardin called The Tragedy of the Commons. Yeah, yeah. And it is the most reprinted article ever from Science Magazine. And I just thought, well, Demsetz read that article and put it in economic terms. Wrong. His article was written before Garrett Hardin's. <laughs> so uh. he came up with it independent. He didn't come up with the term, but he came up with the, the, the idea that Hardin was expressing. Anyway, so now to the American Tim, Tim Cannery. Yeah, it seems like a to me like a clear-cut property rights issue. I should point out I am a resident of Pacific Grove. I did write the city council saying, allow this building. Mm -hmm. And so they, I mean, they did what they could. They, they dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and it still wasn't enough for people who don't want it. And so it's like, and this is the problem in California. People talk about NIMBY, not in my backyard, but there's another one called banana build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything. And this is why my daughter is paying $2,400 in rent for a small apartment in Mill Valley, which eats up a huge percent of her after-tax pay. And, it, it, and it's like, this is, 
you know, it's just unconscionable what people are doing to restrict other people's use of property rights. But as you say, they were, as you said in our pre-talk, they, some of these people who oppose it regard it as a different kind of property right. We have the right to this view. And my argument is simply, no, you don't, you know, and, and there are ways if you want it. So, a lot of people who want the view could get together and pay them, say, to have it slightly uh, lower height. They aren't willing to do that. They just want to make the property owners bear the cost of it. They don't want to bear the cost themselves other than the cost of writing a lot of letters. Yeah. And it, what, what's fascinating to me is because like Proposition 13 or something, there are people here who live in $2 million houses and pay like three, dollars $4,000 in property tax a year. <laughs> and they get, con- they get to control what someone does with a $200 million property or whatever, and they're going to put two them in. It's, it's kind of crazy to me, but what I wanted to point this out, like there's a guy in uh, Canada that writes for the uh, Globe and Mail named Gary Mason. And he accuses a lot of people, uh, you know, using freedom, weaponizing freedom. And he basically says, uh, uh, he's like, okay, there's a lot of great things about freedom, you know, and, and he cites civil rights and stuff. But he says, but others have believed freedom is about protecting property rights, even if that has to occur at the diminishment of democracy. So what he's basically saying is like the crowd gets to decide what David Henderson does, whether or not you can build a pool. And I think a lot of times with like the the water problems here, it's really people are trying to control you from putting on an extra bathroom. Yeah. Really, so yeah. you can have more people live in your house or something. And it's it's kind of bizarre how far we've gotten from individual freedoms in that and and maybe it'll come back. What do you what are your prognostications? Well, I'm not going to prognosticate, but I just want to uh, point something out about what this guy Mason said, and that is there's this thing I've done in my classes. Uh, I really do miss teaching, by the way. That's the main thing the Naval Post Graduate. I'm sure they'd have you back if you asked. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I have to wear a mask. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, what I would do is uh, to really illustrate property rights is I would go to some student who had some item on his desk that he seemed very proud of, and I would grab it, just grab it, and say, this is mine. Uh, and there'd be, say, 25 people in the class. And, and I'd say, uh, anyone have a problem with that? Well, the guy does. And how about anyone else? Yeah, 24 other people do. Well, why? Because he owns it. Oh, oh, you do understand property rights. And that's how I build it. And another way I've done it is, um, you got to be real careful with this kind of thing nowadays, but there might be a woman who has really nice hair. And I'll say, if I had scissors right now, I'd cut your hair and just take the hair from me. You have a problem with that? (laughs) Or she does, and so does everyone else. Well, you have property in your hair. What more basic property could there be? And so we get that you have property in your body, your hair, you have property in this this cup you have, or this computer you have, this book you have, why does it stop there? Why is it that you don't have property when you own a house? And of course, a lot of these people think they do have property when they own a house. They just don't want you to own a house. They just don't want you to build a house. And, and you know, so that's kind of where I would go with that. I, well, there's an interesting, there's interesting uh, question about externalities. And you talk about this in your book and there are, and I think there is some even libertarians have some sympathy to externalities. Yes. Classically, it's like polluting a lit river, but it could be like shooting a gun in your backyard or it could. And we talked last week to Wendy uh, Root Askew, who's a county supervisor, about this problem of people throwing parties in the North County area. And they're really loud at night. 
and they own, you know, they own like five acres and they're throwing these rave parties or whatever in the middle of these, the, the woods. And all of that's fine. But what's the, the problem becomes is the noise of the neighbor for the neighbors trying to sleep and stuff. So, and you bring up, like, there's a lot of great examples in economics about like a dentist who owns a delicate piece of machinery or, or doctor who owns a delicate piece of machinery. And then the baker comes next to him and makes all these vibrations and screws him up. So how do you solve a problem like noise, shooting guns in your backyard, uh, swimming pools, where, or pollution, any kind of externality? How do you, how do you, uh, how did, how would a libertarian approach those situations? Well, you try to approach it first by seeing if you can have property rights. So for example, you give the right to the people in the North County who want the party, make it a clear-cut right, and then other people who don't want the noise can go and negotiate with them. If you limit your party's hours to this amount, we'll pay you X. And if they say, well, we aren't willing to pay enough, guess what? The property right is the, in the hands of the people who value it most. Uh, but sometimes they could. It's just that's not how people think. So that's how you start. That's how you start by thinking in terms of, of property rights, negotiable, and so on. Now, there might be such huge numbers that that's just inconceivable. So it's very hard, for example, to imagine a property right in the ocean, right? I mean, that's pretty big. Or the air. Global warming is probably or, good or the air. Or the air. Good point. Uh, but it's not, by the way, hard to imagine a property right in a river. In Scotland, rivers are privately owned. They're pristine. And you pollute them, the, the, fishermen, the fishermen associations that own them are going to come after you. So, there, so we don't know what the limits are. People used to think we had this problem out west, or actually east of here, of, of you know, cattle on ranches and so on. How do you keep them in a certain area so they don't drift into the other rancher's property and eat the grass. And then something came along just after the Civil War, barbed wire, and that made a huge difference. You could have property rights. So I don't want to assume we, we can't go more in that direction. If we can't, there is a case to be made for certain kinds of restrictions, like you can't have a loud party after 11, or <laughs> if I had my druthers, given when I go to bed after 930, you know? <laughs> but although I think I'm unreasonable. In other words, I think I shouldn't dominate because I just go to bed really early. Uh, but anyway, I, so you do might have to have some of those kinds of rules. Yeah, that's it, it is because you use a, an example in your book about uh, a fishing camp and a chemical plant. Yes, and you th and you think about it like the chemical plant. Maybe it's so profitable that the fishing will never be able to use a lake or a river. But then you think, well, what if you if if you polluted the entire river and it was externally polluting the sea too? Those those are the kind of things that are really hard. Or global warming, like uh, you know, I, I personally think that they'll, there's going to be some technological solution because there was silent spring there was population bomb there's all these dramatic books about how we're all going to die and then lo and behold someone's going to come up with carbon sequestration or fusion something or geoengineering geo yeah they're going to drill holes deep enough where we just get the the heat from uh, the earth core or whatever but but there's going to be some solution right and yeah. uh, but how how are those so you're saying the broader externalities it's kind of like a standing army or whatever that that there are, there is a limit to property rights. Is uh, unfortunately, I think that's true. Unfortunately, I think that's true. But I don't. What I don't want to do is presume that limit quickly without seeing how technologically 
how, how we can advance technologically. So, for example, I think it's conceivable we could have property rights in Wales with RFID technology. You could put little little chips in there. You could track them. You could go after the people who try to hunt them. And, and I think that's feasible, and it might even be better than what we have now with the Japanese doing all their whaling and stuff. Yeah, because you, you'd buy the yeah, kind of like Landwatch or other conservation groups could buy a whale. Yeah, right. Yeah, that would be that's actually I never thought about that. That's fascinating. And by um, the way, one of the most famous examples of this is the Rainy Wildlife Sanctuary, which, by the way, isn't in our book. Maybe it should have been the Rainy Wildlife Sanctuary in Louisiana that's owned by, I think it's the Audubon Society. Here's what's striking. They allow oil production on it because they've said, OK, here's how you do it. It's not that visible. Here are all the safety precautions. They get revenue from the oil and they still have this wildlife sanctuary. So those things are, are feasible. Yeah. And to your point, a lot of like uh, Big Sur Land Trust and a lot of these groups yeah. have really done a good job of acquiring land. So they're kind of yeah. doing more or less what you're talking about. I, w- I would like you to talk a little bit because I think there's an interesting chapter in your book about how the profit motive reduces racial and other discrimination. Yeah. And, I, and I think there's some interesting points in that chapter. And also Thomas Sowell, by the way, a great uh, African-American economist, went, was part of UCLA too, wasn't he? He was there. And people say, why didn't you have much about him in there? Almost all his good work he did after he left there. So he, it wasn't really a UCLA thing, but yes, he was there. Mm, so. So anyway, could you talk a little talk a little bit about that chapter because it's an interesting yeah. Chapter. And in fact, it, I didn't tell this story because it was co-author. I didn't want to be too much me telling my story. But Harold Demsetz came to University of Winnipeg when I was an undergrad, and it's what made me decide to be an economist. And one of his talks was how markets handle solve problems, and one of the ones he emphasized was racial discrimination. And what he pointed out is, uh, um, so you're a landlord. And let's say you don't like black people, but there's one color you do like, and that is green. And so if you say no to a perfectly reasonable tenant who's not going to destroy your place, who happens to be black, you're going to miss out on an opportunity. Will you get another person? Sure. But you might go a couple of weeks without rent, making rent on that building. And so you pay a cost for discriminating. The fact that you pay a cost for discriminating doesn't mean you won't discriminate. It means that you're less likely to discriminate or you'll discriminate less or, or, and so on. Now, says Demsets, let's say the government imposes rent control that keeps the rent below what the market rent would have been. Now you have lots of people wanting to rent your apartment. You can be very choosy. You say no to this black person today, you get a white person today. And so the cost of discriminating has been reduced to zero by rent control. And that was one of the major points that he made. And then what he reported in, in his talk, and in fact, later wrote it up as an article, maybe he'd written it up before, I don't remember. He was at the University of Chicago for a large part of his career. And he was at Chicago when we had him come up to speak to our group in Winnipeg. He said that he, he had a graduate student go through the Chicago Tribune during the war years, 41 through 45 and look for two things, um, furniture and restricted. Furniture meant there was a tie-in on the furniture. So if you rent the apartment, you got to buy the furniture, even though it's old and ratty. Uh, Restricted means we won't take black people because you could 
legally say that in, in the 40s, yeah. right? Before the Civil Rights Act of 64. So what he had him do, and he said, I still regret that I didn't have him break it out into the two categories. It was just a combined category. You had rent control in almost every American city during World War II. And as the underlying inflation was, was kind of hidden because the government was printing money, what the free market rent would have been was getting higher and higher relative to the controlled rent. And so the cost of discriminating was just being driven lower and lower. Uh, and what he found was year, discrimination. Nah. Yeah. Year after year, the percent of ads that were either restricted or furniture, tie in sale furniture went up. I think if I recall from his lecture, which is in a tape in my attic, I'm going to try to find it. Hmm. It went from like 10% in 1941, 42 to like 90% by 1945. Oh my God. And so it just made it extremely hard for black people to find rental housing in That's Chicago. That yeah, that is that is awful in a way, and it's just it kind of shows you that the market does solve problems. And there's all these unintended comp, uh, uh, consequences. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about inflation, but on a, on the national scale because I think you'd have some interesting insights on that. But more more importantly, maybe locally, is what do you do about homelessness? Because like a lot oh, of people oh. need to have their, in my opinion, probably need to have their personal rights taken away so that they can be you know, be made healthy uh, mentally. So they're, they're kind of sick mentally and, and that they probably shouldn't be free, but that's, I don't know, but then that's kind of, I don't know if that's a right, that's a good view or what, what are your thoughts on uh, homelessness? And, and you're going of, to all the hard problems today, aren't you, Paul? <laughs> well, we, you could talk about inflation if you'd rather go to inflation. <laughs> no, 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 that's a worth, that's an important question to ask. So, okay. First of all, I think you got to divide the homeless into two groups, people who are what you're saying, mentally ill in some way and other. No, I think three groups, people who are mentally ill, people who just want that lifestyle and who the hell are we? Yeah, there are people like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I've run into some of them and people who are priced out of the housing market. So Mm -hmm. the one that's straightforward is allow housing. Now, you asked me to prognosticate. I want to point out that that would be let people build trailer parks. I don't know why we can't build trailer parks anymore. But anyway, that's my personal thing. Trailer parks and rooming houses. Yeah. Yeah. You know how many people lived in rooming houses like 70 years ago? Um, And or I'll give you another example. My grandparents on my mother's side were very low income. And when we'd visit them in Winnipeg, um, I mean, I think I'm just thinking through the dimensions of that of that house It had to be like 600 square feet. And they had their bedroom. And then there was another bedroom. Who was in that? Mr. Wooldridge. He was this really nice man who was like a second grandfather to me. And we'd always say hi to him when we visited, but that's how they did it to pay their more extra money. Yeah. 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 And so we could have rooming houses. Um, So you asked me to prognosticate. I want to point out to something very positive that believe it or not, the democratic legislature did in California. When does this ever happen? They do something right, but they have started to override these local restrictions that say you can't build. The yes in my backyard people have really pushed for this and they're getting somewhere. And I think we're going to start seeing more of it. If you want to bring the price of housing down the clear cut way, no economists will disagree with this. The clear cut way is to allow more housing. And then a lot of people. Will they cudgel us with water rights though? I don't know. I'm sorry. 
Will water rights get in the way, like uh, the availability water credits and those kind of things? I don't know. That's possible. But then they've got to find the rights. So if they can't find them, they won't build. But I predict they'll build. They'll figure out a way. And so that solves. So now, so we've got two groups, three groups. I've solved it kind of for the group that's being priced out. The people who want to live that way. Okay. And then there are mental, the mental health thing. Now, there was, we're getting off UCLA now, but. Yeah, Sorry. <laughs> no, that's fine, because you asked a decent question. Um, there was a psych- famous psychiatrist named Thomas Zaz. I became a fan of his in the 70s. He wrote a book called Law, Liberty, and Psychiatry. He basically uh, said that we shouldn't be uh, forcibly incarcerating people just because they're mentally ill. And his view kind of got dominant in the 70s. And they let a lot of these people out. And a lot of them are in the street now. And so I was an advocate of this. And I'm not sure. Like, I really, I'm, I'm really torn. Like, would I want to use force to put them back in? I'm not sure I would, but, but it's an uncomfortable situation. And what I would say is let's have more property rights, not fewer, because I think people have two issues with the homeless of that sort. They, A, they care about them. B, they don't want them in their area. And, well, and those sometimes are sometimes they can be dangerous. I, I have no yeah. problems with, I, for me personally, for, with the homeless, I, I really, I'm, for the most part, I'm okay. But, but there are a lot that are dangerous. Like some of them, you know, someone at the Navy school got stabbed for, you know, just got yeah. the fence and got stabbed. So it's, yeah. um, no, I know. There's this homeless guy. I still see him around once in a while. And 20 years ago, I was walking near my office building, the one that burned down, uh-huh. you know, in Alvarado. And he he was big guy, and he asked me this. Oh no, David, I I could talk to you all afternoon, man. We um, time's I, up. The time is up. Only half an oh my hour, God. sadly. <laughs> but uh, David, this book is free on Amazon about the UCLA School of Economics. Just David R. Henderson. UCLA School of Economics. It'll come up. Get it on your Kindle today. I'm Paul Wyan, owner of Express Employment Professionals. Uh, call us today if you need help staffing 831-920-1857. Find us on the web at whatstheplanmonterey.com. And I want to thank Mark Carbonero, the producer of this program. All right. Check us out next week. But I don't let it, let it get me down. Cause this final The preceding was a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management.